how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is First and Second Thessalonians, Part 2. Well, now, let's pick up where we left off last time. We hadn't quite finished the first letter to the Thessalonians. We got to the third part of the letter where he's concerned with their maturity and their growing up. And we're looking at the two subjects of holiness and hope, very practical holiness in relation to marriage and relation to daily jobs. That's where holy people live holy lives. Now we come to this major weakness of hope. They were strong in faith, strong in love, but not so strong in hope. And I would say that's pretty characteristic of many churches today. And there are far more sermons given on faith and love than there are on hope. But hope is an anchor to the soul, says the New Testament. We live by hope. And hope is the substance of things hoped for. The faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Hope relates to the future. Now, I've told you what the world's attitude to these things were. Let me tell you what the Greek world's attitude to death was. I'll just give you a series of quotations. Aeschylus said, when a man dies, there is no resurrection. Here's another. Theocrates said, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Here's another. When once our brief life sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. On one of the tombstones in ancient Greece, it said, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. And a man had that put on his gravestone. And here is a typical sentence from a letter of sympathy after bereavement. Against such things as death, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Which is hardly a very comforting thought. In other words, the general Greek world believed that the dead were missing everything. That's all. And the effect this had on the church in Thessalonica was this. Some of their members had died. And therefore, they were feeling they've missed it. Because the heart of Paul's gospel was waiting for the Son from heaven. In other words, waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And now some members have died. Poor members. They've missed it. They won't be around when Jesus gets back to earth. And they've lost the chance of seeing him. And Paul had to correct that straight away. Because it left them unhappy. Loved relatives, recent Christians, but good ones, and now they've died, and they're never going to see the second coming, and they won't be around when Jesus gets back. Hmm. And Paul says, listen, you mustn't grieve like others do who have no hope. He said, I'll tell you a secret, he said. You should know this already, but he said, I'm telling you again. He said, when Jesus gets back, who will be the first to meet him? the dead. They will get front seats 
and then afterwards we who are still alive will catch up with them and we'll all meet the Lord in the air. But he said, far from missing everything, they'll be there first. Now I don't know if you've realised the full implications of this, it means this, every Christian who dies is coming back to earth, is coming back here to meet Jesus here and it's on earth that we will get our new bodies, not up in heaven. For Christians, heaven is only a waiting room. There's a thought for you. It's only temporary accommodation for those who've died. But the dead are coming back to earth. Not only is Jesus coming back to earth, but all Christians are also coming back to earth and will meet him here. Now I wonder if that ever really struck you. I'm quite sure that all of you believed that Jesus was coming back to earth, but did you really honestly believe that if you die first, you will be coming back too? And you'll be the first to meet him. My grandfather is buried up in Newcastle-on-Tyne in St Nicholas Cemetery up the Westgate Road there, and on his tombstone are three words, not from the Bible, but from an old Methodist hymn. And I'm sure people have looked at the gravestone and wondered what sort of an old codger he was because underneath his name, David Ledger Porson, are these words, What a meeting! <laughs> and there it is, you see. <laughs> and he's looking forward to being at the biggest Christian meeting there's ever been. And since there's no stadium on earth can hold it, it's going to have to be up in the air. And there'll be millions at it. And if you don't like noisy worship, don't be around that day because the trumpets will be blowing, the archangels will be shouting and loud enough noise to raise the dead. And that is exactly what will happen. So Paul says, don't worry about those who are dead. They will get there first before even you who are still around and still alive. And we shall all be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and be ever with him forever afterwards. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So that was one bit of the second coming which had got a bit wrong. They thought Jesus coming back to earth would only be coming to meet the people who are still alive, far from it. The dead will rise first and meet him first. So if I'm still around when he comes, if I'm still here, then my granddad will get a front seat and be there before me and my father and I'll catch up with them both later. So you see, actually you win both ways, don't you? I mean, whether you die or live. See, if you die first, you get a front seat. If you live first, you never have to die and no undertaker measures you up for a box. So either way we win. Now that's the first bit of uh, second coming teaching that they got a bit wrong. And there was another bit too, the date of it. And here Paul quotes a phrase that Jesus first coined, that he will come like a thief in the night, with the implication that it will be a total surprise and that there will be no warning, that suddenly he will be there. And many Christians have misunderstood this and assumed that he could come any minute. Let me say on the basis of Paul's teaching here, Jesus cannot come back tonight or next week, or this year. But I hope it'll be in my lifetime because I don't want anybody measuring me up for a box. And it is the hope of every Christian generation to go straight from their old body into the new one. 
And incidentally, the new one will be 33 years old, and I can't wait to be 33 again, because I'm told I'll have a glorious body just like his glorious body. So, I'll be half my age. Hallelujah. But you see, the date of it, is it going to be any moment, or will there be things to happen first? And the point that Paul makes here in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians is this, he will only come unexpectedly to those who are not watching for him. The words, a thief in the night, are not directed at Christians. They are directed at those who are not ready, or even at Christians who are not ready. And the very word thief means, to those who are not ready, he comes to take things from them. A thief in the night. But he says, you are not living in the night, you are living in the day. You are alert, if you keep alert, and if you keep watching, you will not be surprised. You will know when he's coming. Now they still didn't understand this, so he had to write the second letter, as we shall see. Because then they seriously misunderstood what he said. There is so much misunderstanding about the second coming, and it really has to be cleared up. May I? give a little commercial for my book, Explaining the Second Coming. It came out in December, and I'm trying to write a bigger book on the same subject to follow it up. An awful lot of misunderstanding and confusion. Listen, Paul is saying, if you are alert and sober and watching, it will not be a surprise. You will know. You are watching for the signs of his coming, and when the signs are seen, you'll know. He said it's to unbelievers who live in the night and it's to believers who are asleep that he will come as a surprise, but not if you're alert and watching. Now that's a very important thing in considering the date. He can't come tonight because there are things that haven't happened yet that have to happen before he comes. But if we keep our eyes open and watch the signs, we won't be surprised. We won't know the exact date, but we'll know the approach, and we'll be ready. It's unbelievers and sleepy believers who will be caught out, but we won't be. Now that's a very important point that he makes about the date of the Second Coming. He then finishes the letter almost as if he suddenly wants to preach a dozen sermons to them. And the last little bit of chapter 5 is just packed with goodies quite unrelated. It's almost as if Paul says, oh, I want to tell them that, and I want to tell them this, and tell them that, and tell them this, and, and he fires a lot of telegrams at them in the very last half of chapter 5. Let me just try and put them in some order. First of all, he has a word about their leaders. Now, one thing I forgot to tell you about Thessalonica as a town, as a city, is this. It was the first time Christianity encountered democracy because this city had its own democratic government, very democratic. One result of that was that the women enjoyed a degree of emancipation there that uh, was not enjoyed elsewhere in Greece, but they had this very strong emphasis on democracy, and the result was they did not respect their leaders. It's one of the weaknesses of democracy, that you quickly lose respect for leadership. Isn't that happening? Well. Paul says to the Thessalonians, who are so keen on democratic voting, respect your leaders. They can't lead if you don't respect them. 
The church is neither a democracy nor a dictatorship. I've seen churches that are both, or either. But the church is neither. The church is what we call a theocracy. It's ruled by the Holy Spirit. But it is ruled by the Holy Spirit through spirit-filled leaders and spirit-filled followers. But it's not a democracy and it's not a dictatorship. The leaders are not dictators, nor are the members a democracy. And so Paul puts in a special word, respect your leaders. Then he has a lot of advice for the members. He tells them three things they mustn't be and five things they must be. One after another, it's like a machine gun firing bullets. He says, don't be idle, don't be timid when you're being persecuted, don't be weak, but do be patient, do be forgiving, do be joyful, do be prayerful, and do be thankful. And then he finishes up with each person of the Trinity and a little word about each person of the Trinity. First about the Spirit. He says, don't quench the Spirit. Don't suppress the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. It's very easy to despise prophecies. A simple word from someone. Don't despise prophecies. Don't quench the Spirit. But do test everything. That's so important. I hear a lot of prophecies these days that are not tested. Do test everything and hold on to what is good and avoid what is evil. Very practical advice in the area of the Spirit. When the Spirit is moving in your church, you really need to remember these things. Don't quench the Spirit and don't despise prophecies, but test everything and hold on to what's good and let the bad go. And then he talks about God. May God sanctify you through and through through and through. And then he finishes up and may Jesus keep you blameless until that day. And the letter closes. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I emphasize the word holy. Do you know the difference between a kiss and a holy kiss? The difference is two minutes. <laughs> and we all need to learn the difference in these days. Affection, not attraction and the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now that's the end of the first letter. It's a very warm letter, friendly letter, encouraging letter, comforting letter. Here's Paul speaking like a mother and a father to them, to his children. And then you suddenly get two Thessalonians just a few months later and it's as cold as cold and he's distant and he's a bit horrified with them. And he's clearly very upset. What has happened? Somehow in between the first letter going and the second letter, he has heard bad news about them. On the same subjects as he dealt with already. And in fact the second letter covers much the same ground as the first except for that middle bit on Paul's integrity. He doesn't go over that again because that's dealt with now. But he does begin by trying to say some nice, th nice things about them and he can still say some nice things about how they're holding on under pressure of persecution. Times are getting tough for them. The hatred that was directed against him is now being directed against them and he congratulates them on holding on. They are suffering great injustice 
but he assures them that in the future the God of justice will deal with those who are troubling them. And there's a series of six words that makes your blood run cold as to what God will do with those who trouble Christians. Here are the six words, destruction, exclusion, judgment, tribulation, vengeance and everlasting. And he comforts them by saying, that's what's going to happen to those who are persecuting you. When Jesus comes back, he comes back with flaming vengeance on those who have been troubling Christians. You should tremble when you hear of people who persecute Christians. Tremble for the persecutors, for what's coming to them. Human injustice in the present, yes, we do suffer that, but divine justice in the future is what they will suffer. And there are only two destinies facing men and women. One is to be with God forever, the other is to be in hell forever. And we need to remember that all the time. Somehow you can cope with this world better when you remember there are only those two destinies lying ahead of every human being. But there are still the same two problems, their hope and their holiness. And he goes back to these problems, but in reverse order. That's why I've done a sort of crossover like that. He deals in the second letter with their hope, which has gone into real confusion. They are really confused now about the second coming. And it's not Paul's fault. I'll tell you whose fault it is in the moment. And then their holiness. It's interesting that in the second letter, he only deals with the work aspect. It seems if the other got cleared up, but the work aspect has got worse. And all this is bad news. They are now in confusion about their hope and many of them have given up their jobs. It's not unknown even in these days for Christians to throw in their job and say, I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me what to do. There's no trace of that kind of foolishness in the New Testament. Well, let's look first at their hope. It had been a little too weak and now it had become too strong. So much so that many of them were believing that the Lord had either come already or was just about to and that there was no point in doing anything else but wait for him. And that's how people who get fanatical about the second coming find themselves. They uh, become unrelated and unrealistic about daily life. There's nothing worth doing. I've had letters from young people saying, why bother to go to Bible college if Jesus is coming soon? You know, I must get out and save a few souls while we can. And you can get an unhealthy emphasis on when Jesus is coming. And especially if it's so soon, so soon that there's, you know, we ought all to drop our jobs and all go as missionaries to wherever. You know the kind of pressure? That is unhealthy and it's not uh, Paul's kind of approach. So let's see what was happening. They had received a fraudulent letter which was said to be from Paul to the effect that the second coming is about to take place, drop everything. And it was not from Paul. You see what's happening now? In the first letter, the devil attacked the messenger now the devil is attacking the message and he really can get people tied up in this. I'm doing a lot of teaching just now on the uh, book of Revelation. Uh,
in church in Basingstoke. I'm taking their Lent evenings and take them through the book of Revelation. But I find there are two sorts of Christian in the book of Revelation. There are those who can't get into it and those who can't get out of it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There are those who are so puzzled by it that they're afraid to pick it up and read it and those who are so fanatical about it that, you know, they're constantly in it. It is so easy to get unbalanced about the second coming and the devil knows that. If he can't keep you out of something, he'll push you too far into it. That's, that's his tactic. And he's now done it with the Thessalonians. He's got somebody to write a false letter to say that the second coming is just round the corner. So drop everything. And one result was that many had given up their jobs, their daily work, because the second coming was so near. Well now, Paul says something here. It's an extraordinary answer to the perversion of the message. He said, the second coming cannot be immediate because there is at least one big thing I told you about that has to happen before Jesus can come. Now, though he doesn't use the word antichrist, this is what he's talking about. He says, there is a man to come first who will have no regard for law at all and will set himself up as God. He calls him the man of lawlessness. Elsewhere in scripture he's called the beast or the antichrist. And what Paul is saying is the antichrist has to come before the Christ comes. And the antichrist hasn't come yet. So the idea that the second coming is just around the corner is just not on. Now here is the important principle which he laid down in the first letter that Jesus' coming cannot be immediate because certain things have to come first and those who are alert and watching will see those signs first. And until you see them all, you cannot know. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 gave four major signs of his coming and at the end of giving them the signs he says, when you see all these things, you know that I am at the door. And of those four, I can see one and a half very clearly, but two and a half I cannot see yet. Now with the speed of world events, they could happen very quickly. But until we see all the signs that Jesus gave us, we cannot say his second coming is imminent. We can hope it will be soon, but we can't say it's just about now. Now that's what had happened there. They'd had a letter from Paul reportedly or reputedly from Paul, false letters, an anonymous letter really or pseudonymous with this false signature and saying, get ready, the second coming is just about to take place. And Paul says, no it isn't. The man of lawlessness has not appeared. And you notice the clear implication that Christians will see that man of lawlessness and will see him do his dreadful work. And we look for him and it's not Saddam Hussein and it's not Gaddafi and it's not Gorbachev and it's not a whole lot of people that are seeing. We'll know when and uh, when the worst will happen. You see, there is a view of history that lies behind the New Testament and I think at this point I'll just give you a little lesson on the philosophy of history. There are a number of different philosophies of history in our world and if you're not careful you pick them up from the newspaper, from the television and here are some of them. 
Um, let's take first this very common one. History repeats itself. Have you ever heard that? And this is the idea, this is the Greek philosophy of history, that history goes round in circles or cycles and it repeats itself. And so empires come and empires go, but it never goes anywhere. History is not going anywhere, it's just going round in circles. That's the Greek view of history. A variant of that is a very common one today and that is the continuous view of history, that history just goes forward, it doesn't go back on itself, it goes forward but it just goes up and down, up and down, up and down. Better times, worse times, war, peace, inflation, deflation, we just go up and down and we go forward but we're not getting anywhere. That's a variant of the old Greek attitude. Then there is the progressive attitude of history which was very common at the beginning of the 20th century that history was on the whole, even though it was waving a bit, it was going up, getting better. And in 1900 an English Prime Minister said, up and up and up and on and on and on. Marvellous cry, a bit stronger than back to basics but anyway, up and up and up and on and on and on, you see. Now that's the progressive view of history and the key word at the beginning of the 20th century was progress, progress. As we enter the 21st century, I would say the opposite view is the most common, that things are getting worse and worse. And in fact the key word as we go into the 21st century seems to be survival, not progress. But there is another view of history which is shared by Jews, Christians and Communists, believe it or not, and all three got it from Jews. And the apocalyptic view of history is that things are going to get much worse and go down and down until they hit bottom and will then suddenly get better and stay better. Now that shape of history is what we call the apocalyptic view of history. It is the biblical view. It's the view of the Jewish prophets. It's the view of Daniel. Things are going to get worse and suddenly better. It's the view of the communists. Now the difference between Jew, Christian and communist is who is going to do this? And the communist believes that man will do it. That's why the communist dream is now fading rapidly because they believed that things would get worse, the struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie will get worse and worse until the revolution and after that the classless, crimeless society. But that's the shape of it and they got it from a Jew called Karl Marx. The Jew and the Christian both believe this but they have a different answer to what will do that. The Jew says God will do that. The Christian says Jesus will do that and that this will happen at the second coming. So the New Testament view of history which is clearer in the book of Revelation than anywhere but is behind the book of Thessalonians is that things are going to get worse until there is a world dictator called Antichrist, a man of lawlessness who says, there is no law except my will and I am God. The devil once offered Jesus the post of Antichrist and Jesus refused it. The devil said, you can have all the kingdoms of the world if you let me be boss. He was saying, would you be Jesus Antichrist for me please? And Jesus had come to be the Christ, not the Antichrist. He refused the offer. Now that is the view of history and that rock bottom will be the appearance of that antichrist, that man of lawlessness 
who will set himself up as God. You see, there is an unholy trinity that's going to take the world over, made up of the devil, the antichrist and the false prophet. A kind of terrible satanic substitute for Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And when those three are controlling the world, you're at rock bottom. And then you can look up for Jesus is coming to reverse the whole situation. Now that's what Paul is saying and therefore he says, don't get all worked up that the second coming is just around the corner. Things will get worse before that can happen. Now he's sobering the whole situation down as you can see. He also says something else. He says the influence of this man of lawlessness is already in the world. There's a lawlessness and yet somehow it is restrained at the moment. It's kept on a limited length of rope but one day God will remove all that restraint and then you really will see a horrid world. But Jesus himself said it will only be for a very short time, very short time and from the book of Revelation we can guess that that time will be three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, whichever way you look at it. It's a very short time and then Jesus comes. So to think he will come before all that happens is a mistake and it's likely to throw you off balance as it was in Thessalonica. So he moves to this aspect of work and he said a very harsh thing really. He said, if any man will not work, neither shall he eat. Christians, you're not to feed a believer who throws in his job. Now that means two things. First of all, it means sloth or laziness is a sin. You just have to read the book of Proverbs to find that out. But when was that sin last preached on in your church? It also means unemployment is an evil which we must fight. We're talking now about people who will not work, not about those who cannot work. You understand, I must make that absolutely clear. And so we have a twofold task to help every Christian into work, but not to help Christians who will not work. And I remember a young man once coming to visit me about 12 noon and uh, he sat in the lounge and talked to me and he kept looking towards the dining room table which was set for lunch and he looked hungry, you know. And uh, finally he couldn't bear it any longer and he said, uh, what time do you have lunch? I said, as soon as you've gone. <laughs> and he said, well, I was rather hoping you might share your lunch. With and I said, no, the Bible forbids me to. And he said, well, where's that? So I showed him two Thessalonians and I said, you see, you are a professional student. I said, you've been nine years a student and as soon as you finish one course, you apply for another and you have every intention of spending the rest of your life at taxpayer's expense being a student. You have no intention of taking a job and paying society back for all they've invested in you. I said, I'm sorry, but it says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Well, he left, not the best of friends, but about a year later, our front door bell rang and there he was again and he said, you can give me lunch today. <laughs> and I said, all the food in the house is yours. But you see, we're not a soft touch. The church isn't sentimental. 
It's very important that we take a realistic view. And Paul says, you've got to stop these Christians who've thrown in their job because the second coming is around the corner. That is not holiness. That's not how to be ready. When the Lord comes, he wants us to be doing our job faithfully and working for him. You read the parables about the second coming. They all have this emphasis. You are not going to be ready for the second coming if you think it's around the corner because panic will be your motive. You are more ready if you don't think he's coming tomorrow, if you're faithful nevertheless. Do you understand what I'm saying? All the parables Jesus told about the master coming back and saying, what did you do with my talents, or the bridegroom coming, all contain the phrase, he was a long time coming. And it's the delay that tests if you're ready. Not what you do if you think it's next Tuesday, but what you do if you think it won't happen for a hundred years. Will you be faithful? Will he find you still doing the job that he gave you to do? That's the important thing. And I say it again, God is not so much interested in what job you do as in how you do the job you've got. He'd rather have a conscientious taxi driver than a careless missionary because he's more interested in character than achievement. And we need to encourage our people with this. Your daily work, Billy Graham's wife has a notice above her kitchen sink, divine services held here three times a day. She's understanding. As a man in Leeds who goes into a, a little church every morning and leans his brush and shovel against the communion rail, prays that God will bless him, and his streets are the cleanest in Leeds. That's full-time Christian service. And God is not really interested so much in what job you do as in how you're doing the job you've got, whether you're a housewife, computer operator or what. But the church has graded work for the Lord. Top of the list missionary. You'll get your photo in the church porch if you go to Timbuktu. Next, evangelist, pastor. Then fairly high doctors and nurses. After all, they care for people, you know. And teachers come a little lower. Then taxi driver, whoo, way, way down. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. In the Bible, manual labor is at the top. You work with your hands. Lord, establish the work of my hands. The work of my hands, establish thou it. And Jesus was a carpenter, and Paul was a tent maker, and Peter and John were fishermen. That's how they prepared their work for God. It's an important point which is very seriously overlooked and it means that people who've been in the same office for 40 years feel, oh, I wish I'd been able to serve the Lord and you know, I wish he'd called me into some real Christian job. They've got it all wrong. When Jesus comes back, he'll be running the world with you and he'll be looking for people he can trust to run the law courts and the banks and everything else. Paul says in Corinthians, how dare you go to litigation with other church members when you will be judging the nations one day and we're preparing for the job we'll have when Jesus comes back by the way we do our work now. That's holiness. That's being a people ready for his coming. I wish I had that little Negro spiritual song with me, but I haven't. But it has that constant refrain, and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. <laughs> And the skies will fall apart and the king will appear and he'll find me hoeing cotton when he comes. The last line is, and I'll kneel 
among the cotton when he comes. Now that man understood that work done for the glory of God is a holy thing and is full-time Christian service. How many of you are in full-time Christian work? Right. I wish I'd asked you at the beginning and then I could have... <laughs> All right. Now do you notice I've missed out one thing? We pray for you. That comes in again here. We pray for you. You pray for us. That comes in again. You pray for us. He's saying we are far apart, but I haven't forgotten you. Have you forgotten me? Let's pray for each other. I pray for you, and you pray for me. Here's this great missionary, Paul, saying, I need your prayers. You pray for me as I pray for you. And you'll find that in so many of his letters. The order is different because his prayer is concentrating on this now. But he's saying, you pray for me because we pray for you. We may be separated in distance, but we can still be helping each other. And we can pray for each other. Well, that's just an introduction to the two letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. But now I've got a little surprise for you. A week or two ago, I got a letter. It had uh, my address and it had a Greek stamp on it. And it was from Christians in Thessalonica. <laughs> Would you believe it? And here it is. And the videos from this room have gone to Thessalonica. Where is it? They are being shown to Christians in Thessalonica. And this last letter said, we made a mistake actually, we sent them two lots by mistake. And so they said, we've sent the others on to a place called Kavalar, which is the Neapolis of Acts 16.11. Neapolis. So the videos made here are being seen in Neapolis. And then later it says, and we've sent some others to Albania, which is Illyricum in Romans 15.19. So they've also gone over here to Albania and the videos that we sent to Thessalonica are being seen in Neapolis and in Illyricum, Albania. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So here we are, and this, uh, they are the ones who laugh at my pronunciation of the Greek because modern Greek is so different. And they really tease, the, they pull my leg about how I pronounce Greek words. Well, <laughs> that's my problem. But uh, isn't that lovely that uh, what we're doing here is going right back to those places and we get a letter from the Christians at Thessalonica <laughs> about how the videos are helping them. And they're spreading the word around the very places where Paul took the gospel so many years ago. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.